what we hear around us, what we just are constantly assailed with all the time. I mean, you turn on the news in the morning, turn on Good Morning America, open up Yahoo News or, you know, whatever you look at. What's the first thing you see? Another 100,000 unemployment numbers, uh, new foreclosure records, um, you know, terrible tragedy of a financial scale, not only around the country, but around the world. And, you know, we're the, I've, you know, I've been thinking, we're the church of Christ. We are those who are called of God to bring an answer to the world. What is it then that can be our foundation? What is it then that is our answer? And even as we were singing, uh, I was, that, that line, to consume me and change me from the inside out. You know, what we do on the outside is only an indication of what's already going on on the inside. And, you know, I was reminded of Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The world is trying desperately to conform us. The devil weakens our position as the church of Christ by conforming us to the world. And it doesn't start with what we do. It starts with the way we think. You've all heard probably the term a worldview. It's a philosophy on life. It's the way we approach things, the way we think about money, the way we think about relationships, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about people. And our cry and my cry tonight for all of us is that God would consume us in our thoughts, in our philosophies, in our worldview from the inside, and that will have an outward effect, and that will be a witness and a light to the world. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that. I, I want to thank Pastor Bill and uh, Pastor Barry in his absence for giving me this opportunity. It's a huge honor to share the word anywhere to anyone and uh, wonderful people in my own family of faith. It's a, it's a great honor. So thank you. Um, I've entitled the message Christ the Solid Rock because I want us to reassess the stability and the quality of the foundation blocks in our hearts and lives in the area of finance and material possessions. Um, the, the hymn is well known to all of us. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's pretty clear to look around us and see in terms of finances, in terms of material possessions, it is sinking sand. And it's all around us. It probably affects us. It affects a 401k <laughs> for a lot of us. It may affect our own employment. Somebody that we know closely all around us is sinking sand. And I don't, I don't want to speak beyond what I feel God putting in my heart, but it doesn't escape our notice to think that just, you know, some eight years ago, September 11th, 2001, the American sense of security, which was second to none in the world, if anyone thought they were secure in the world, it, it was those who lived in the United States. People came from other countries to have that sense of security. That was dashed. That was blown apart. In the same sense, over the last year or so, our sense of financial um, potency, financial power, financial uh, strength and stability is dashed just as well. We have other countries saying that we need to learn from them instead of them from us. And so that's the world around us. Are we conformed to it or are we transformed by the word of God? and thereby empowered to transform the world that we live in. That's what I, that's what I feel that is, is our responsibility and we need to look at. I'm going to, 
I, I, was, I wondered if I even needed to put this little section in my notes because, again, we see these numbers. We get bombarded with this information. But I think it is important because the world that we're ministering to, what is the motto of this church? Every member a minister. That world that we're ministering to, this is what they're hearing. This is what's resounding in their heads, what is talked about at the table. Um, and so I just got some latest statistics. February alone, just last month, over 650,000 American workers lost their jobs, directly impacting the standard of living for an estimated 2.6 million people. People. That's based on U.S. Labor Department statistics. 2.6 million people, their standard of living impacted by unemployment in one month alone. In the last four months, over 2.5 million jobs have been lost. Since the presidential election, I just had to pick that as sort of a, a time in, in, of important events, approximately one person every five seconds has received the devastating news that they, are no longer, they no longer have their primary source of income. Employment now stands at 8.1%. If you're 65 years of age or younger, you've only seen one period of time in your life when it's been anywhere near that bad in the early 80s. I was pretty young then, so for me, this is about the worst I've seen. For a lot of us in here, that's about the worst that we've seen. In 2006, 270,000 foreclosures. In 2007, 400,000. And in January 2009 alone, over 270,000 people lost their jobs to foreclosure, their homes to foreclosure. This is the world that we live in. This is the, the concept of the American church that functions, that witnesses, that attempts to establish the kingdom of God in a sense of security, in, a, in an ambiance of prosperity and stability, is no more. Where the church of Christ, the light to the world, the power of God in a dark place, in a country that is, is struggling, in a country that's facing serious problems. And unlike politicians who have to stand up and think that the, you know, all they have is their own words and their own power of persuasion and their own uh, policies as flawed as they may be. That's not us. We serve the living God. We serve the creator of the universe. We serve the, the, the master of our souls, our redeemer. And, uh, and that should give us a, a great sense of prize. We, we serve a risen savior. And what is our answer? There's a phrase in the gospels that has always been something I've gone back to. John six sixty eight, um, and it's uh, not specifically about the context of, of devastating news, but uh, Jesus was speaking to a group of people. He said some things that were <laughs> shocking and concerning to a lot of them, and it says they began to leave, and they were only left the twelve were there with Jesus. And, <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he wasn't doing much to draw a crowd. He said, do you not also want to leave? <laughs> And, and Simon Peter, for all the, all the things that were off base that he said at different times, he said one of the powerful things right there. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He said, I don't, you know, I get the feeling that Peter didn't understand really what Jesus was saying either. He didn't quite know what to do. He didn't know, understand everything. But he said, this one thing I know, you have the words of eternal life. You are the source of truth. You're, you're the only way I'm, I'm going to go forward in life. And that's, that's my answer, too. I said, Lord, the economy's falling apart. I'm looking at my own future, my, my children, everything. You have the words of life. 
Um, I look, you might turn with me to John 17, and I, uh, I don't know if I should apologize for this or not, but I, I don't have the Bible verses on the screen, so we all get to get familiar with our, our Bible again and start turning to references there, which I think is good practice for us. John 17, 14 to 18, Jesus praying for his disciples in the, the last of his time on earth. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. We live in a world that we are not of. We live in a world whose principles we are not to follow. And yet, virtually 24-7, certainly every waking moment, We are bombarded by the bad news, the despair, the worldly and carnal solutions to what goes on around us, trying to make us conform to the world. Jesus knew the pressures of that, and that's why he prayed for his disciples, and by extension for us, when he said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Don't take them out of the world, he said later, but keep them from the evil one in verse 15. And that's, that's our prayer. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. I want to talk about foundations. And uh, I'll get a little bit later on to the little handout that you have. Uh, when, I, when I share my introductions, tend to be about 80% of the message. And we get to the message. So we, we'll get to that, what you have in front of you. And I'll tell you when we do. But there is a, there's a, a statement that's often repeated. Psalm 11.3. Says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And, you know, a lot of people look at that as well the foundations of our lives, the things that we build our stability on, the build, things that we build our sense of, sense of stability and security on. You know, what, what can the righteous do? Well, I have to ask, what are our foundations? Is a growing economy the foundation of our peace and joy? Is the accessibility of the American dream, dependable health care, and the promise of comfortable retirement, that which we pursue and that upon which we base our lives? Absolutely not. And if anyone needs to know that and share that message and live that message, it is those of us in this room and all of those in the Church of Christ around the world. And no, no more important time than now to do that. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. Christ, the only foundation. You know, and it's funny, when I, I did a little research into that hymn, it, was not, uh, it wasn't written about physical difficulties. Christ, the solid rock, was the rock of our salvation. We trust only in him, not in our good works, not in anything else. But I think it certainly applies, too, to looking at the difficult situations that we face in the world. Listen to this carefully. Your foundations can only be shaken when your life is built and your hope is placed on something other than Christ. If you feel the foundations of your life shaking, shaken, if you feel your sense of security rattling like a tree branch in the wind, it is because you have probably inadvertently built your life, built some foundation blocks on something other than Christ. Foundation blocks, the way I'm referring to them, are not abstract ideas. They're real values that color our every waking moment. What brings you peace? Or what takes peace away from you? 
What brings you joy? Or what takes joy away from you? What brings you a sense of security? Or what takes that away from you? The answers to these questions indicate the foundation stones for your life. And these are things, I mean, far be it from me to imply that, that, you know, these things don't get to me more than they should. But every time I realize that I've allowed something to get in the way of Christ as a foundation, my sense of security, my sense of peace and joy to be threatened by something taking the place of the Lordship of Christ, I have to go back to my foundation blocks and reassess where I am and fix, fix some things in my own mind and my own heart. Your fundamental values and beliefs, which is your worldview, as I mentioned earlier, are not what you say you hold true or what you want to embrace or that to which you mentally ascend. Your values are evidenced most accurately in what you do. Unfortunately, (laughs) I say unfortunately because I'm the kind of person that, boy, I I believe all the right stuff. I can can say it. I believe it. And I really do. But you know, at the end of the day, it's what I walk out. It's what I actually do. It's what I do when, when things are, when things attack me, when things come into my life that are difficult. We had a situation in our home just, just last week. My son uh, had, was, was playing and he, and he fell. And uh, he, he hit himself pretty good on the back of the head. And, uh, you know, there was some blood and and of course, a lot of crying and, and screaming. And, you know, there's a, as a dad and as a parent, there's a part of you that, you know, the exterior calm, you know, we got to do what's right. We got to, you know, assess the situation. And do we go to the emergency room, which we ended up doing or not? How do we handle it right now? And I'll say right now, it was my wife who had the cooler head on her shoulders <laughs> at the moment. But, you know, I, I, had, to, I had to have a talk with myself <laughs> later on. When I realized that, boy, honey, I don't know. We were, we were minutes into that situation before I cried out to God. We were minutes into that situation. I mean, the emergency room, I was trusting in that. My wife, I was tr- trusting in her because she seemed to know what she was doing. And Christ was three or four on the list, you know? And that was a time for me to say in terms of my own children, in terms of their health and their safety, and what, what could there be that's more important to us than that? I, I, my trust wasn't in Christ primarily, not at that moment. And it was actions. It was those difficult situations that really proved to us where we are. What is the quality of our foundation? And, of course, not a time for condemnation. It was just a time for me to say, Lord... I trust in you. I want to move my trust from other things to you and reassess that. But it's what you do. Now, we say that we believe God wants to heal us and is more enabled to do so. But when we only cry out to God in illness as a last resort, we indicate that Christ is not our source for physical healing. We say that God is our source of physical sufficiency, but panic when we learn our job is in jeopardy. If we do that, we reveal that Christ is not the source of our material needs. We've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be honest with ourselves in terms of what we're trusting in. Where are our foundations? What is the ground that we're standing on? And instead of denying weakness, 
and, and you know, saying, well, this is what I believe, and this, this is what it is, but reacting differently in, in actuality. I would point to uh, another of my favorite uh, passages. Look at Mark 9.24 with me. At the very least, it'll keep you awake flipping through your Bible, so that's a good thing. Mark 24, and I know, uh, Pastor Bill, you've referred to this a lot. This is, uh, this is the favorite of those of us who really want to trust in God for all of our needs, but frankly have to admit that we really don't do it all the time. We see a, a father with a child in, in uh, you know, uh, demon-possessed, in, in very, very bad condition, And uh, the father in verse 22 explains what's going on in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, because the father had said, well, if you can help us. He said, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a powerful statement. I just feel the honesty. I feel the sort of a, a moment of conversion. A moment of crying out to God, a moment of, of salvation, if, if we could almost say that. The, the, that father saying, I believe, Lord, I, I do, but I, I know that I don't fully help my unbelief. Help my, I trusted you, I want to, I know I need to, but I don't fully help me in that. And I'll tell you what, that's a prayer God responds to. That's a prayer that God jumps all over, that catches the ear of heaven. Our father is a compassionate father. He loves us. He is sympathetic to an understanding of our weakness. Jesus, as our own high priest, is sympathetic to our weakness. Not, you know, we, we hear that. We think of weaknesses in terms of temptation and things like that, and that is absolutely true. But also just the, do we fully believe? Do we fully trust in God or our trust is in something else? Jesus knows where we're coming from, and he'll help us. But we have to cry out to him. We have to cry out to him in honesty when we see that our foundations are not where they need to be. You're pretty close to it, so flip over to Mark 4. I was going to say March 4. That's what spell check does to your notes. Mark, oh, Mark 4. Uh, Pastor Barry would have all these memorized. I don't. So uh, <laughs> this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels, and there's so many amazing ones. Just listen to this. Listen to this story. You've heard it a hundred times at least, but it's the word of God and it can change us if we let it. And on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, (laughs) do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus said, I'm not going to answer that. No, he didn't say that. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very afraid. (laughs) And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What, what a story. Power to calm the storm and peace to sleep through it. Jesus' source of peace was what? His trust in his Father. 
his trust in knowing who he was, where he came from, and who he was going back to. His trust that his life was in God's hands and his, the way and the time for him to die would come and on the sea that night in that storm was not the way and not the time. And his trust was in God to the extent that in a, probably a hurricane, these were experienced fishermen who had come to the assessment that they were going to die. They'd been in a lot of storms. They didn't quickly say, we're going to die. That's something I would do. But they were experienced. They knew what they were talking about. And they were very concerned. Jesus, sound asleep. He had a busy schedule, but I don't think that's what made him so tired. I think it was the peace that he knew from his father. The miracle to sleep during the storm, in my opinion, was the greater miracle. Without which, the lesser miracle of calming the storm would not have been possible. I, I believe that firmly. As a... You know, as I'm a, I grew up as, I don't know if most of you did or some of you did, you know, in the, what could be called the, the word movement and, you know, the, the authority of the believer. And I absolutely believe in that. I believe in the power to calm the storm. I believe in the authority that God has given to believers. But I do believe that the greater victory is the peace and the trust, the absolute confidence in God that allows you to sleep in a storm. We've all had storms in our lives. You know the ones I'm talking about. The ones like this, where death was just around the corner. Something devastating was right there at hand. The ability inside to know absolute calm. Calm to the sense of a child sleeping in a father or mother's arms. That's the peace. That's the power that precedes the power to calm the storm. That's what Jesus knew, and that's what he wants us to know. And I think that's what he was getting at with the disciples. When he said, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? He wasn't really saying, how is it that you didn't calm the storm? He was saying, how is it that you're so afraid? Why did you think we were going to die? We're not going to die. The power to sleep during the storm precedes the power to calm the storm. How can we have peace to sleep? In the financial storms of life, how can we ensure that our financial foundation is built on that which cannot change? There are great um, programs out there, and some that I listen to on the radio. I don't mind mentioning, they're outstanding. Dave Ramsey, you've, you've all heard of him, on how to manage your finances, how to live debt-free, how to not... Uh, rely on credit uh, more than you should. And I, I absolutely love his programs and they're good things. Um, I, I believe these are important, but what I'm getting at tonight and what we're going to get to on your handout in just a second is what are the motives? Why do we want financial security? Why is it that we need this financial security? Understandably, in the last year or so, there's been a flocking to programs that teach better financial management than some of us have had in the past. That's a good thing. We need it in the church. It's needed outside of the church. But what I want to get to tonight is something even more fundamental. You know, because if, if we want to be debt-free, as Dave Ramsey would say, if we want to live in, in a, a prosperity and a freedom from debt, which are biblical principles but our motives aren't right for wanting to do so, 
I don't know that we're any better off than, than being in bondage to debt and being in some of those difficult situations. So that's what I want to look at. You know, and I know, uh, you know, I've even heard him say, you can't know peace, financial peace, without knowing the Prince of Peace. And that's, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm getting at today. Financial prudence and wisdom are essential and biblically mandated, but one's motives for pursuing financial strength must be right. Motives are foundations. Motives are your worldview. What drives you to live the disciplined life? What drives you? And that's what we're going to get at. We're going to look, and this refers to your handout, at seven biblical truths related to wealth and material possessions upon which we base our financial decisions, assumptions, and pursuits. Let's look at Luke 18. Luke 18, we're going to look at 18 through 23. Just picking all my favorite stories here. Luke 18, 18 to 23. A certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you lack... Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. There's another translation where it says, when he heard these things, he walked away sad, for he was a man of great wealth. And I think, as we've heard that, we we picture that conversation. You know, uh, a young man who sincerely wants to follow Christ. He's kept the law. He's done everything that a God-fearing person of that time should do. He happens to be wealthy, but that's not to his discredit, at least not thus far in his life. But Jesus looks into his heart, and he knows that that young man belongs to his wealth more than his wealth belongs to him. And he says, there's just one thing, because to follow me, you have to lay down your life. To follow me, you are the seed that falls into the earth and dies and thereby bears much fruit. So one thing you're missing, and the man heard that, and in an instant he knew he was too close to that. He held it too tightly. He walked away sad. It was too much to part with. And in that story, and of course, there's, it's, it's exciting how, how there's always hope, uh, I have, to, I have to just mention that. You know, the disciples, verse 26, I love the disciples. Most of what they say, especially the crazy things, are so similar to what I would say. <laughs> they heard it and said, who then can be saved? <laughs> they said, it's hopeless. We're all up a creek without a paddle. He said to them, the things impossible with men are possible with God. There was hope for that man. And he could come back and give his life to Christ. Number one, there on your handout, all that I am and all that I have belongs to him who redeemed me. All that I am and all that I have belong to him who redeemed me. And that is, that's point number one, foundation block number one of the Christian worldview, the biblically sound worldview that we have in our hearts. We do not own ourselves. We've been bought with a price. Everything we have, everything we own, 
I think one of the best things that we get in this body is every now and then, you know, we have missionaries speak to us. And we hear of people who give their whole lives, leave everything, and go and serve Christ. And and it challenges us. God doesn't call us all to do that. Does not even probably call the majority of us to do that in a physical sense. But he he has called us and uh, we have to be have that mentality, have that that posture of our hearts. Let's look at John 18:33. Just not moving too far here in the gospels, John 18:33. We're now on to point two. This, this to me is so amazing. Jesus, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That, of course, was a little different situation than wealth or finances. But Jesus said so clearly. I mean, you you picture the scenario. There he is standing. His life is in the hands of this powerful leader. Uh, a, A godless man who had probably no religion but some pagan religions. He's standing before him. He's unafraid. He's unafraid of what could be done to him. And he says, the reason I'm unafraid, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not from here. What happens here today doesn't affect me long term. And I translate that to our understanding of material possessions in this way. My life is not qualified by, dedicated to, or preserved by material possessions. Look at Matthew six nineteen. Quickly, six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The great temptation, especially in this country, is to qualify our lives based on our material possessions. Dedicate ourselves to pursuing them and then believe that our life is preserved or secured by them. Don't make that mistake. Unfortunately, that's been the misinterpretation of the American dream. And we as the church cannot participate in that, in that uh, misconception. Let's look at number three, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 51. Looking down to verse 53, we know the story. Jesus is in the garden and uh, Peter wanting to protect him, had drawn his sword and cut off the ear of the the servant of the high priest. Jesus told him to put his sword away and then said in verse 53, or do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. The Jesus was all powerful. He was God. 
he could have ended that situation there and then. We all know that. That's, that's part of the, the greatness of the love of God, part of the greatness of the servanthood of Christ. One of those things that's almost beyond explanation. Jesus knew he had that power, and yet he was laying down his life for all of us. Number three, I am an heir to the whole of my father's world, yet I am also a servant to all men. It's an amazing, it's not a contradiction, but an amazing balance. Our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We are the children of the king. We absolutely are. There's a power, there's an abundance, and there's a joy in that. And yet at the same time, as we like to say often in this church, we wash everyone's feet. We're the servant to everyone. We lay our lives down in the same way that Christ did to reach the world around us, to serve each other. Real quick, back to Matthew 6, where we just were, 633. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. My affections are set on God and people, not money and what money can acquire. There is a simple truth throughout, throughout the Bible. The greatest commandment, love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, like unto it. I always like that way the, the Bible said is like unto it. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we've been looking at on Sundays. Who is my neighbor? Loving God and loving people. That is, that's where our affections lie. That's where our heart is. That's where it should be. Not on money, not on what money can buy, not on material possessions and what material possessions mean to us. That absolutely goes against, especially the American way of looking at life and looking at the world. But that's God's way. That's the foundation block. That's the, the belief. That's the core principle that should guide the way we live. Let's look at the next point. I have them lettered. I don't have them numbered. So I think that would be number five. Let's look at Acts 4.31. This is a, a very powerful, amazing picture is painted here. Um, a little less common than some of the other passages we've looked at. Acts 4.31. I had to put 31 in there just because it talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's, that's critical to all these things working together. When they had prayed, the place was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as all had, as any had need. Material things with which I am blessed by my Father are no less for the provision of others' needs than they are for my own. We truly are to be conduits of blessing. We truly are to be vessels, carriers of the things that God gives us. God has blessed me with a job. I thank God for that every day. I ask him for wisdom and strength to do a good job, to serve him and glorify him in that. And the material sustenance that comes through that job, 
That, sure, certainly that's to meet my needs. It's to meet my family's needs. It's also to meet your needs. It's to meet the needs of the world. It's, the, it's to meet the needs of the work of God in the church. And just that mentality in our minds that we are a channel. We receive from God and we, he, he meets our needs. We thank him. We meet other needs. We are a channel of blessing. Material things, again, with which I am blessed by my Father are no less for the provision of others' needs than they are for my own. Number six, it is God's desire to meet my needs abundantly. That's an absolute principle of Scripture. God is a God of abundance, and he wants to meet our needs that way. Don't have to turn there, Malachi 3.10, you know it well. Talking about bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me now in this, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you can't contain. We are hearing about a God of abundance, a God of abundant provision. I love Matthew 6, 26 and 30, and we don't need to turn there, but, you know, uh, Jesus talking, why are you worried about clothing? Boy, doesn't that speak to Americans? I, I guess it must speak to more than that. But I, you know, we worry about clothing a lot. Why are you worried about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. If God so raised the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he do so for you? Praise God. We serve a God of abundance. We serve a God who wants to bless, who wants to give us all things freely to enjoy. That's a principle. That's a foundation block. That's a belief that we have to hold because it's from the Word. Standing on the Word. Well, what do we build our lives on? I mean, do we build them on CNN? Do we build them on political parties? We build it on the truth of the Word of God. I don't have the verses up on the board. I'm making you look through your Bible. This is something I hope we're doing every day. We've got to love the Word. We've got to live by it. You know, as a, as a father, and many of you, fathers or mothers out there, you know, how, you know, it's just one of the greatest and deepest cries of our heart. Lord, how do we teach our children? How do we build these things into our children? And probably sometimes we feel a sense of inadequacy at it and and, you know, on rare occasions, a sense that we might be doing something right. It's as simple as God revealed this to me years ago. It's the principles and the truth of the Word of God. It's a love for the Word of God. And, uh, and that's, that's for us, too. I just had to say that. Let's look at Luke 12, looking at the last point there on your, on your handout. Luke 12, 13. Actually, verse 16. A sobering story. And a story which, which challenges me every time I see it. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. Sounds like our country over the past decades. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops, my abundance? He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid out for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you and now... 
Who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that phrase, you fool. The word of God to those who trust in wealth. The word of God to those who said the stock market when it let them down. The word of God, perhaps to us, if we turn our eyes to finances, if we turn our our eyes to financial stability as a means of security in life. This man had everything. He had it lined up, and there's nothing to indicate that he had done anything wrong to gain that wealth. He was successful. His land was productive. He'd done well. His heir was not in doing well, not by a long shot. His heir was trusting in it. His heir was saying, the security of my life lies in those barns which are filled with plenty. The answer of God, you fool. And he said, life is not about food in the body, not about clothing. Verse 22, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, or what, or, nor for the body as to what you shall put on, for life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Financial well-being is not the basis of my security. Financial well-being is not the basis of my security. You know, from these seven principles, it's a, it's a great idea for every one of us to make sure our house is in order in terms of good financial practices. Not being in debt. Not relying on credit. Saving. These are good biblical principles. And I think we should all be investing some time in making sure that we're following what those good teachings and those good principles are. But first, we need to look into our heart, be honest with ourselves and open to the Holy Spirit and say, are my true thoughts, are my true values, are my foundation blocks based upon the Word of God, based upon these principles from the Word of God? Or have I allowed them to be conformed to the world around me? A ton of conforming pressure is out there. The day is far gone. The night comes when no man can work. As the church of Christ, we have not a moment to spare in assessing and repairing as necessary our foundations. I said it at the beginning. I'll say it again at the end. We've got to make sure our worldview, our hearts, the foundations of our lives are right. Eight years ago, this country's sense of security was shown to be false. In the last couple of years, our sense of financial invincibility was shown to be false. As the church, we're we're set up for such a time as this. We really are, because our trust isn't in these things. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. 